All right, well, welcome to Wednesday night, part two of this First uh, Peter book. Uh, we're going to be going through verses 3 through uh, 12. I put the schedule and the questions at the information desk if you want to grab them. Um, you certainly can. Or in the future, if you want to grab them, that's where they will be. So I started printing off the questions, um, and they'll be at the info desk if you want to grab those. Let's pray, and then we'll get into uh, a really exciting, uh, encouraging text. So, Father God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for uh, this day that you have created, and we would be remiss not to be grateful for the unseasonably warm weather that we've been able to experience and that little piece of joy that you give us uh, in the winter. We are grateful for that, and we just ask that you would be with our time tonight, that we would be able to focus on your word, hear from your spirit, and that we would be moved closer to you in this thing that we call spiritual formation as we work towards our ultimate salvation in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to go verses 3 through 12 uh, tonight. We are quite lopsided tonight. For those of you at home, you don't know because you're at home. Maybe you're in a fish house. I was thinking about that tonight. I was like, and we could be streaming this and fishing at the same time. How great would that be? And said, we are here, and it's also great to be here. So, uh, verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As you uh, can tell, Peter doesn't mess around with his sentences, and his sentences are so dense that uh, the people that put together the text are like, we have to break this up into multiple verses because it is uh, far too dense to be one singular verse. So after the opening, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a common phrase. We see it in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul uses that same language. We see it in Ephesians. Again, when Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, he uses virtually the same uh, sentence or phrase. It's interesting as uh, we talk about uh, Paul's understanding of the Trinity and you'll notice in this section, he is, wants to incorporate all three persons of the Trinity. And uh, he, he points out here that, that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. You're like, well, yeah, obviously. Uh, but it, it's important because what he's going to get into is this begetting of uh, us in the next uh, sentence. So he wants to set up the same Father of Jesus, God the Father, is also our Father. And so it's not that he's placing a hierarchy of 
you know, Jesus is under God the Father. If you want to talk church history, we've had various conversations about, we've actually had a, a split of the church around understanding how the Trinity functions. We're not really going to get into that tonight. Uh, but he wants to make the distinction between God the Father and Jesus Christ and the point of, the, of Jesus being who he is, the Messiah or the Lord. And so he's setting up, he's using this common phrase to set up what he is about to say. According to his great mercy, okay, we've talked about this concept before. Last week we talked about grace and peace. Mercy is the withholding of something uh, that you should experience. Usually we think about it in the sense of punishment. And so grace versus mercy, grace is giving you something that you don't deserve, and mercy is withholding something that you do deserve, in particular, in relation to uh, punishment. So, in his great mercy, what has he done? He has caused us, okay, again, he's writing to, to people who are followers of Jesus. He has caused us to be born again. Now, this word is this idea of begetting. You know, you think about what is the most famous begetting verse. Phil, I'm, part of my problem with the kids being at home is I don't drive them to school, and now Maddie can drive, so I miss out on Bible baffle. You're like, why has Pastor Eric not called in? I'm missing out. You're like, well, you could listen in your house. Fair enough. What's the most famous begetting verse of all time? So close, John 3, 16, only begotten Son, it's language that we do not use, except Peter is using it here. It's this uh, being born into, this recreation of, this born again or born anew. Now, that's, this is a verse where, last week we mentioned a little bit, uh, some people argue that 1 Peter was a baptismal address uh, that was used in early church history around baptisms. We see this language of being born again as part of, of the uh, argument for that. But what is it that we're born into? We're born into this living hope. Now, part of what Peter is doing in this portion of his letter is he's getting us excited, set up, full of uh, encouragement and rah-rah because what he's going to give us next is going to be some very stiff uh, information. So he wants to communicate the hope that we have is not some dead, gone, stale, wasted hope. This hope that we have is a living hope Part of why it's a living hope is because he makes the point, uh, because it comes at the result of Jesus' resurrection. You know, we, we can say oftentimes, without the resurrection, Christianity is like every other religion that exists in the world. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that our hope is a living hope. Our hope is something that is alive and active. And that is good news, and that is exciting. 
And that's what Peter wants us to be thinking about. So it's this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into what? Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now it's interesting because remember when we talked about the book of Jude, when we spent all that time dissecting the book of Jude uh, last year? One night, for those of you who weren't here, you could still catch the video. Jude was big on triads. Some people would, would argue that Peter is the same way. He likes triads. I think it's, it's further uh, proves that both of them were, were clear preachers in the Baptist sense of three-point sermons. They like to use threes. But, but let's not miss this. To an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, when we think about inheritance, what is the first thing that we think about? Money? Thank you, Jerry Maguire. Somebody has to die, yes. In order for us to get this inheritance, somebody has to die. (laughs) We don't get it until that person has no longer uh, alive and present with us. And, and we're going to talk back and forth throughout this study about is First Peter written to Jews? Is First Peter written mainly to Gentiles? Is it both? This is a great example of him using Old Testament allusions that, that a Jewish listener would hear and say, oh yes, of course. Because throughout the Old Testament, we hear all of these references to the Israelites and the inheritance. But for them, the inheritance was the land. God is going to give them this land as an inheritance. And he is making this point further. Remember last week we talked about being exiles and this earth is not our home. A Jewish listener would hear inheritance and think, oh, property. But he's already said, no, this earth is not your home. This inheritance that you're going to get is in heaven because it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is perfect and everlasting. That's another way to say those three words together. I mean, think about that. You ever get something, okay? You get something and you're like, this thing is awesome, it's brand new. And then it's literally the next day, it's not brand new anymore. (laughs) You're like, now this thing is wasting away and then it has to age for so long before it comes a classic. And you're like, okay, now now it's finally cool again. But oftentimes in order to get something that is old to be cool again, you have to go through the process of restoring it. What Peter is saying is the inheritance that we receive through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't need updating, doesn't need to be renewed, it doesn't need to be changed, it's never going to, uh, it's never going to perish, it's never going to be defective, it's never going to go away, like my iPhone 6 that is an archaic piece of uh, technology, and my kids are like, you need to get a new phone. Well, now I've encountered the, maybe the problem the straw that's going to break the iPhone's back, and that is my silent button is no longer working. Dun, dun, dun. 
piece of junk. <laughs> but how, when it's something on earth, it is a perishable item. Or, or like for Christmas, somebody sent uh, us this box of Harry and David Royal Riviera pears. Did we not share any with you? I don't think we did. I'm sorry. I apologize. They weren't completely ripe when we got them, so then you set them away. And then there's always the one that you're saving. You're like, oh, I'm going to savor this one. And then you open the fruit drawer and you're like, no. (laughs) And then you eat it anyways. It was mildly defiled. What Peter is saying is what we are going to receive as followers of Jesus Christ will never perish. It's never going to be defiled. It is unfading. It is going to be incredible. And where is it at? It's in heaven. It's something that we are not going to fully receive here on this earth. And now we get into this conversation about the now and the not yet. So does that mean my experience as a follower of Jesus Christ here on this earth is not going to be enjoyable? It's not going to be, uh, I'm not going to receive any of the benefits of this inheritance because it's in heaven, and so it's this end of time thing, and so I'll just wait, and, and everything is looking forward to our experience in heaven, which creates some significant challenges for us. And we'll talk through those uh, throughout this book. So this thing, who by God's power are being guarded, okay, who is the who here? It's the us. Like, you're like, this sentence is so long, I've forgotten where we were even at. So the us, he has caused us, that same us is the who in verse 5 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God and his power are guarding us through faith. Now, this is one of the most interesting uh, points of contention in this section of verses. What does Peter mean when he says that God's power is guarding us? Because what he doesn't mean is that God's power is shielding us. Which is a very important distinction because guarding, we often think of guard dogs, right? Protecting from an invasion, which is more of a shield, And what Peter is saying is guarding is holding on to and protecting to a degree, but not completely. And we'll get into that as we talk about trials and suffering and these types of things. So as we think about this, we have to think about what does it mean that God is guarding me or guarding my inheritance, it means that he's not going to allow anything to happen to me that is going to take me away from my ultimate inheritance, which is brought to me through Jesus Christ and my faith that is salvation. So if we think about 
the life of Job and the conversation between God and Satan, God says what? He says, you can do anything that you want to Job in an earthly sense other than take his life. And so God guards Job and he experiences all of these terrible things, but his life is spared and his relationship with God is kept intact. So apart from that, anything can happen. And we're going to talk about that as we go along even tonight. So this protection by God's power, how does it come to us? He says, through faith. Now the grammar gets interesting here because whose faith? Is it God's faithfulness that protects us? Is it our faith in him that acts as a protective agent? Is it our faithfulness and obedience to what Christ has called us to? How does that sequence of events take place? And there's all this ink that gets spilt over the, this conversation. And much like what we've said before, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is God is faithful and, and it's, it's his faithfulness that protects us, but it's our faithfulness to him and remaining engaged in this relationship that we are going through as we move towards our ultimate salvation. He says, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the last time is not our last time. It's a phrase about the end times and the final last time when Jesus returns and the culmination of all of human history. But notice what Peter says. When is salvation fully realized? It's fully realized in the last time. And it causes us to scratch our heads because we have come to um, ask this. Hmm, how would I say this? Let's just say it this way. The most ridiculous question, which is, are you saved? Are you saved? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> I have not experienced salvation in Peter's terms. And Russ back there is like, wait, what? <laughs> Excuse me, I, I object. I did all the things, confirmation, all the things, baptism, all that. I'm, I'm saved. We are justified, made right with God. Okay, we talked about this, right? justification, sanctification, which is the rest of life from the point of justification to the point of death, and then glorification, and that whole process is salvation. Okay? And, and theology is very, it, 
whether we think of it in these terms as being good theologians, it's becoming so much more apparent to me that good theology is essential. So, I say yes to Jesus Christ. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I want to have a relationship with you. Whatever the the phrase that you want to use of accepting Christ and moving into this relationship, that is justification. Everything after that in this life is sanctification. That's this what Paul says of working out our salvation. And once we die, we experience glorification, going to heaven. And that whole process is salvation, and that is what Peter is saying. In the last day is when we experience our inheritance in heaven, which is salvation. So, can we all commit to stop asking the most ridiculous question? Or if somebody asks you, are you saved? I dare you to say no. Especially if somebody... Knocks on your door, probably two people. Are you saved? Actually, no, I'm not. Come on in. I have an hour. You realize that they buy those, those pamphlets, and so they want to get rid of them because they have to buy more. That's a sidebar. Uh, verse 6. In this you rejoice. Woohoo! Yes! In this, in what we just talked about, this process of accepting Jesus Christ and looking forward to our inheritance and, and living out until the very end, and then we experience glorification and then eventually we'll experience salvation. And in that we rejoice. Woohoo! Now, we discussed, and we've discussed this before. I admit, and I acknowledge, we have had a disservice done to us by our culture, meaning our upper Midwestern, Norwegian, Swedish, German heritage. I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can break free from this. And it starts tonight. So are you ready? On three... And even the non-woohooers, because there are some admitted non-woohooers, but I think tonight we can do it. And you at home, somebody in your house is not watching with you. They're going to come say, what's going on? And you're not excited because of the James Harden trade, which Lee and I were just talking about. Okay? On the count of three, we're going to give out a woohoo. One. Two, three, woo! It can be done. In this, you rejoice. It's a total setup. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Wait, what? Now uh, I'm rejoicing in my trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found 
to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though may you though you may not have seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this you rejoice. This isn't like uh, if you feel like it. This is if you are in this position, you should be rejoicing. How often is it that we walk around like the most burdened Eeyore disciples? Oh, yeah. Huh? How's it going? Well, you know, got to go to Wednesday night. Well, you know, like to sleep in on Sunday, but I got to go to church. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, got to read my Bible. Like, are we kidding? Peter is saying, we have the most incredible experience that is salvation, and we should be rejoicing. It's not a word that we use, but it is an expression of the joy that we experience through salvation in Jesus Christ. Okay, clearly we are missing the point here. So at that point, somebody... Meaning all of you would be like, woohoo! I shouldn't need to. Show one, do one, teach one. But for so long, we think that, that we can't exude this joy. And the joy is a result of our salvation. Like, have you ever had a close call? Maybe a life-threatening experience? Maybe it was a near miss? And you're like, whoa, I dodged that bullet. Yes! Jesus Christ provides the ultimate dodging of the bullet of, how do we say it? Hell! <laughs> we should be like, yes! Woohoo! Inheritance! Yes! I cannot wait! Because we get bogged down in what he, what he is about to say. <laughs> he says, though now for a little while, okay, if necessary, and there's this big discussion around, uh, around how we view this, and we're going to have lots of opportunities to discuss this. But he says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Suffering is a key theme throughout Peter. Throughout Peter. And we know at the time... People who identify as followers of Jesus Christ are being killed. 
We know that. Persecution for them is extremely real, and it is something we're going to unpack and try and understand how it relates to us today. Here he says, various trials, which causes us to say, what would be a trial? What would be a suffering or a hardship that I experience in my life as it relates to my relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, suffering for Jesus Christ is not having to come to Wednesday night. (laughs) But it's interesting because when we think about this, the opposite of suffering is comfort. The opposite of suffering is the easy street. And we can all acknowledge it would be far easier if we were at home like those people. I'm not, I'm not besmirching your name. You're at home watching for a reason and we, we're with you. But it's easier to not do these things that is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. There are times when we are called to engage with someone or something and to not engage would be far easier it would be far less challenging but the holy spirit works in us and prompts us to engage knowing the consequences of that engagement is going to result in our discomfort. If somebody says something that is extremely inappropriate, whether it be sexually inappropriate, racially inappropriate, inappropriate as it relates to Jesus Christ, you just fill in the blank, and you hear it, you have an option. The option is to not say anything. But silence is acceptance and permission for that person to repeat that behavior. But you know, if I say this, if I say, you know, that really was not appropriate. Oh, oh, oh. Look out. And so we experience trials on a regular basis, but we also consciously avoid trials because we want to take the easy road. And what Peter is saying here is the trials that you are experiencing have a very specific reason. And the reason is these trials are going to purify and bring out the genuineness of your faith. They are going to be the refining fire. That's what he uses this uh, example of gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. It is the pressure that proves the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And that is what is going to result in our 
obtaining our inheritance. To think of it this way. Everyone says that they'll do something until they're faced with that something. I know this on a regular basis. I love to jump off cliffs, especially into water. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm totally, I love to jump off cliffs. I've jumped, I've jumped off like 200 footers. They're like, no, you haven't. Oh, yeah, no, I totally have. So then you walk them up to a cliff that is far shorter than anything they have jumped off of. And you're like, all right, let's do it. Ah, Yeah, just don't really want to get wet today. Liar. You're lying. I have called you on it, and you are unwilling to accept the test. What Peter is saying here is, the trials that we experience, the suffering that we experience, the persecution that we experience as followers of Jesus Christ is a test to refine our faith because our faith is of utmost importance for our salvation that we obtain in the end. And so rather than avoiding trials, we should be looking for opportunities to refine our faith. Completely counterintuitive. We want to be as comfortable as possible. The problem is, it's the trials that result in the purification of our faith. And when we go through these trials and we prove our faith through this testing, through this refinement, what is the result? Praise and glory and honor, another triad, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is this experience of trial and suffering and gritting it out, and then you experience the true gem of faith, and it is praise and glory and honor for Jesus Christ. The challenge is, part of what we need to do is reimagine what we think and how we think of suffering. Because Suffering isn't exactly what we think it is. Think of it this way. There was this amazing uh, hill, and it's still there because uh, for those of you trivia buffs, the last dam in the Missouri River is in Yankton. It's called Gavin's Point. The most incredible sledding hill of all time. But what is it about a sledding hill that makes a sledding hill great? Snow, yes. The grade. The problem is, in order to experience the greatness of the grade, you have to walk up the hill, dragging your sled. And you're like, why am I even doing this? And then oftentimes you're like, this is acceptable. 
uh, Eric, you're only a third of the way. I don't care. I'm done suffering. I'm just going to go down. This is good enough. But if you get to the top, it'll be even better. Yeah, I don't even care. So if we think of suffering in terms of laboring towards something, we can reimagine what these trials look like and see them as opportunities to grow our spiritual muscles to experience the most incredible thing. Last year, I went on this backcountry ski trip into the, the wilderness behind Jackson Hole, and uh, we had this one lap, and it took us an hour and 45 minutes from our camp to skin, which is kind of like cross-country skiing, uphill, to skin all the way up to the most incredible ski line of my entire life. It was an hour and 45 minutes where I questioned my life, my sanity, why I was even there. It was suffering. And then it was pure, unadulterated joy. And it was totally worth it. And that is what we, what we can do when we think about this thing called faith and trials. They are there for a reason. Peter says, if they are necessary, and when they are necessary, the suffering and the trial that we experience produces praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you may not have seen him, which Peter says, I've seen him, you, you may not have. You, getting this letter, you may not have seen him, but I have seen him. You believe, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Yes! Right. It's, it's so incredible that you can't come up with words for it. So all you can do is be like, "Woo!" You ever had that experience? We trek all the way up an hour and 45 minutes and I'm sweating and, and I'm like, why am I even out here? And then as soon as you go downhill, the powder is just going over your face and you're just like, literally unexplainable. Woo! You ever have those experiences? Like, you see something and, and you're like, God, you are so incredible. I don't even know what to say. So I just say, whoa! Every once in a while, happened last Sunday, second service, if you were here, the Spirit moves in such a way that somebody's like, whoa! It's rare. Very rare. Doesn't have to be. After tonight, it's going to catch on like wildfire. Just takes one, takes one clap, and then it's like, oh, yes, yeah, me too, woo, yeah, woo. What Peter is saying is salvation, the revelation of Jesus Christ produces this joy that, that literally is beyond words. 
Is that the experience that we've had with Jesus Christ? Is that what, what our faith looks like when we live it out? Like, woohoo! And it's not just inexpressible joy, it is joy filled with glory. And this glory that he is talking about, again, is an allusion to the Old Testament Shekinah glory of, of what God experienced. And one commentator says, joy that has been infused with heavenly glory. I mean, just think about that for like one second. If we saw our faith in Jesus Christ as the experience of joy and heavenly glory, how would that change how we express it? When we experience a trial, rather than being like, okay, yeah, no, I'm good, would we not embrace it and say, this is for the glory of God and is for the refinement of my faith? Woo! The answer is probably not. <laughs> because after all, we are human beings. Inexpressible, filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is what? The salvation of your souls. Again, the outcome of your faith is salvation. Like, this whole process of living out our faith results in eventual salvation after we have had our spirit refined, or our faith refined. Then he goes on, he says, concerning this, I mean, we could just keep talking about this uh, joy because it gets me all fired up. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the, uh, the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." In these two short verses, we get the totality of God's plan and work from the Old Testament to the New Testament to present day. This salvation that we've been talking about. The prophets of the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the time when a Messiah would come. And, and it says the Spirit of Christ was in them. People say, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Acts 2. Wrong. The Holy Spirit has always existed. The Holy Spirit has always been active. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. 
and was working through the prophets. Remember back to the book of Isaiah. Some of you say, I want to forget. Please don't forget. Isaiah is prophesying about the suffering servant and looking forward to the Messiah and the hope. And, and, and it's like all these Browns fans that are looking forward. Someday, Lord, maybe we'll be in the playoffs and actually win a game. And God says, I don't care about the playoffs. I care about this. I'm sweating. It's, I'm so excited. I'm just sweating. The Spirit of Christ is working in the Old Testament prophets. People say, why is the Old Testament even important? It just bogs down our, our Bible, makes it so much heavier. Because it all works together. They predicted, the prophets predicted and said that we will have a Messiah and this Messiah will suffer. And Peter is saying, yes, here it is. It was revealed to them that they they were not serving themselves. I mean, when have we ever considered this amazing reality that the prophets of the Old Testament were working for us? Think about that. Joel and Amos and Obadiah were working for us. They're working on behalf of God for us. That's what Peter says. How incredible is that? I just need a little button. It could be like a, yeah, like, like a, like, yes. We just need like a, woohoo! <laughs> they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced, now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. To you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Old Testament prophets are looking and they're predicting by the Holy Spirit about who this Messiah will be and centuries upon centuries upon centuries and then he shows up and now these people, us, we are experiencing the opportunity for salvation through Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit and look at the Trinitarian view that Peter gives us. It's like, oh my word, incredible. And what is it? It's something that the angels long to look for. Just ruminate on that for a second. We have something. We have access to something that heavenly beings long to look at. I mean, for real. It's like somebody gets a new thing, and you're like, oh, let me check that out. And you're like, if you have the new thing, you're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal, actually. Actually, I probably would have gotten the other one, but. No, we should be like, yeah, check it out. How amazing is this? The angels long to look at what has been declared by the Holy Spirit that has been sent to us. I mean, just incredible. Incredible. 
we could just keep going, but we need to get into our discussion groups. So, those of you who are at home, I am going to post the uh, discussion questions in the comments. Those of you who are physically here, you can go to your groups. The gentleman will be uh, at that station by the back door. The ladies are uh, gathered up over in this area.